he would pull him off the field. And while he was shaking his hand, he was grabbing his wrist and looking at his ankles and his feet <laughs> and putting his, his hand in the shoulder socket. Wow. Because oh there, there's some indicators that allow scouts like, hey, there's a red flag on a player. Welcome back to Moms in Baseball. This is episode 30, and I'm Stephanie. And I'm Diana. Today we have Mark Kreziak from Bay City, Michigan with us. Mark has been involved in the game at nearly every level. He was a college player himself, and he's been a varsity, little league, and travel baseball coach. He started a massively successful travel baseball organization, and Mark was an associate major league scout. Uh, Mark is also a baseball parent himself. I know Mark because he's the founder or one of the founders of the travel baseball organization that we are involved with. He's also coached my kids and Stephanie's kids in a few capacities through lessons, camps, and clinics. And the only reason we waited so long to ask Mark for an interview was because it just seems like there's so many things that we could talk to him about. And it took us a moment <laughs> to sort of wrap our minds around, you know, what we could focus on. So we're really grateful that Mark is willing to be with us this morning. Welcome, Mark. Well, good morning, ladies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, normally we record these at night, but Mark was willing to wake up early and talk to us this morning. This is very different for us. So later we're going to talk a little bit about your experience starting a competitive travel organization and talk about your turn-ons and turn-offs that you've talked about with your scouting. But right now, could you tell us a little bit about yourself as a player in your own experience playing in high school and college? Yep, I'll start in high school. So uh, I played at Bay City Handy High School, and we were probably within this region, one of the top two or three schools at that time as far as like baseball talent. And a lot had to do with our youth organizations in Bay City. We had a really strong Little League program. And we also had a strong, what we would call Pony Colt and American Legion program. So I was funneled up through that in high school. And I'm not going to say we were coached, you know, extremely well. It was just a very competitive baseball community. Okay. I think the competition amongst coaches and players, it's really what developed the talent in Bay City. Mm -hmm. And if you were a good player, um, Diane, I'll know the individual I'm talking about here. A gentleman named Wendell Niemer from Saginaw, who coached Saginaw Means Stamping, mm -hmm. an 18 and under team, he would find players in this area. Um, you'd play with him in the summer. And then he had most of the contacts as far as college. And he was the one who kind of set me on my way. And I was able to get the opportunity to go to college. So I'll, I'll go into that. So when I was senior in high school, playing for Wendell, I had a bunch of options. I was deciding between Western Michigan University, um, a junior college in Alabama, and a junior college in Kansas. And after meeting, you know, with my parents and Wendell, we decided it might be in my best interest to go down to Alabama based on what I was trying to pursue. So I went to a school called Calhoun uh, Community College in Decatur, Alabama, and we had a very good team, a very competitive conference. And I played there for a year and a half, and then I transferred to a place called Lake Michigan College. It's in the St. Joseph Benton Harbor area in Michigan. Okay. Um, mm -hmm. Had a very good coach. His name is Tom Ackerman. I would say a, a lot of my coaching philosophies really reflect on what Tom had taught us because he was such a, a great practice clinician. Um, intense, high reps, great teacher. So he's a person who really had an impact on me at, at that level. And from there, I transferred and played at Central Michigan University in Mount Pleasant, Michigan. So that's kind of, you know, the timeline of my career. And, and just out of curiosity, because the only one of those schools I'm familiar with is Central. And Central is, is Division One. What about the other schools that you went to? So they're both they're both junior colleges. Okay. And that, yep. And junior colleges at that time, there was only one division. Now they, they've uh, broken it down into three divisions. So the one down south in Decatur, Alabama, they're still a Division One junior college. Okay. And really what, you know, people ask, what are the differences between Division One, Two, and Three? So in Division One junior college, you can give full rides. In Division Two, you can't pay for the room and board. You can only pay for like their tuition fees and books. And then Division Three, you cannot pay for anything. Okay. Wow. And I have to imagine. I mean, I know at the time they weren't broken up into divisions, but essentially, right. Division One junior college in the South must have been like a really competitive school. I would imagine. Yeah, and like what happens is they get a they get a unique blend of athletes. 
So they get kids who are, let's say, they're not quite ready for maybe Division One. So they also get kids who are drafted out of high school who use junior college as a way to negotiate because you can get redrafted as a freshman and a sophomore. You don't have to wait till your junior year like you do at a Division One or Two school. Mm-hmm. And then from there, what you'll find out is also you'll get the kid who's not the good student. Um, could have played at the Division One level. However, they were a non-qualifier. So okay. that's what happens in junior college. And what was interesting about in the South, we had kids from northern states. We had kids from Alabama. We had kids from Georgia. So we had, we had a blend of all three of those type of players. And, and that, that's how most of the schools... I would have to say that's how they they rolled down there. They're okay. really, really similar as far as the makeup. Interesting. <laughs> I'm just going to back up here for a second and just um, help connect listeners. You had mentioned Wendell Niemer, and we have talked about him and his the mean stamping team in past episodes. We talked about him in the episode with Mark Jeb, episode 20, because he had coached his older son and helped him get into college. Um, I'm sure we talked early on in our travel ball versus rock ball episode about how uh, Trevor and my brother had played for him. And he also helped my brother get into college to play. And then um, I don't know if we mentioned it, but in our episode with Chad, you know, the the kid who was cut from his high school teams and ended up going on to play division one baseball. He wanted to play for Wendell like really badly. Um, I don't know if he mentioned him by name, but he said there was this team he was really hoping to get on and you know, the coach didn't want him. And then later once he (laughs) once he played at Eastern and was looking for a summer team, they'd kind of matched him up to go play for Wendell then, but he found another team to play for. But anyway, so we've mentioned him in several episodes. So I just wanted to connect, (laughs) connect listeners there. Yeah. He's a, he's a popular figure in this area when it comes to you know honestly the, the you know the development of players and getting them into college so yeah absolutely did you play any other sports at a higher level um in high school I played uh, I initially played football basketball and baseball and then my sophomore year I dropped basketball and I just played football and baseball but I kind of realized at about like age 16 like baseball was going to be my route based on my physical stature and just I would also say from the feedback I was getting from coaches you know they're like you know you have, you have some special talents and skills you work at this you're probably going to get some opportunities so you know I kind of knew it like I said about 16 or 17 that was going to be my focus long term and I should know this I'm going to guess were you a catcher no not, I, you weren't I was a middle infielder <laughs> oh I played shortstop and second base so <laughs> here's what's funny when I played I was kind of I don't want to say a late bloomer I played at about 175 pounds um what's funny is when I graduated I was about 5'10 and then I didn't realize this I grew an inch and I actually got up to about 5'11 and a quarter when they did our physical at CMU then I shrunk to 5'9 with the bad knee and now I'm back up to 5'10 oh there you go wow from you know after I had knee surgery so it's that's Uh interesting yeah and obviously the there's a weight difference uh the 175 is non-existent now well (laughs) yeah that happens we get that yeah that happens yeah I just always assumed you were a catcher no I just you know the catching thing um it kind of happened accidentally as far as me like instructing and teaching lessons we had uh Matt Noakes he he ran a series of hitting camps at peak performance when we first opened up Matt Noakes like from the Tigers from the Tigers yeah oh my gosh yeah he ran two different hitting camps at peak they were weekend camps and he certifies coaches to be like his certified hitting instructors. So Merkel, that is, he followed that route and he, had, you know, he asked me if I wanted to be certified and I'm like, well, I just started working with catchers. I'd really like to learn, you know, more about teaching narrative catching. So after he'd ran these hitting camps, he gave me some individualized instruction for about three to five hours, I would say on four different days. And I, I kind of use that as like my baseline is where to start. And we, we used his teachings and implemented them with the, with the catchers who would come in for instruction or played in the River Dogs organization. And I think just because of my stature now, people assume I'm a catcher. <laughs> yeah. If, hmm. if that makes sense. So. Yeah, that's that's interesting, though. Um, Matt Noakes was like, when I went and watched the Tigers in the early 80s, like I had a Matt Noakes t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> Diana's a super fan. Now we know. Yeah, I mean, I was when I was like six. I don't know, but he's a, you know he's a, he's a really super guy. 
Um, just he's genuine. He has a passion for teaching hitting like no other person I've met. So that's great. Wow. That is good to know. I'm curious. uh, Stephanie asked you about the other sports that you played. And we talk a lot in our episodes. We ask people, you know, what are your thoughts on playing multiple sports versus specialization? And I'm sure that you have your own thoughts about it. But I've also heard you talk about like a unique perspective or observation you have on specialization with Dominican players. So I wondered if you'd be willing to talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So I I think what happens in here in the United States, there's this, how do you want to say it? There's this carrot that's put in front of athletes. Like you have to be a multi-sport athlete in order to be successful. And they get feedback from a variety of like well-known college coaches, you know, football, basketball, baseball. And people have this perception if you're not a multi-sport athlete, you're not going to develop as well as players who only individualize. So then you look at a place like the Dominican Republic, and that's all they do. They only specialize in one sport. And when you look at the makeup now of major leagues, the best players, there are some Americans, but what we call America's game is really the Latino game. Mm-hmm. And their philosophy has nothing to do with being a multi-sport athlete. hmm So I don't think the message is really accurate. I think the message is, it's a great message to be a multi-sport athlete, but I believe at some point you do need to specialize in the sport that you think you're going to excel in. Can you play another sport on the side? Yes, you can. However, what happens if you don't work on the specific skills in certain games, you're going to fall behind your competition. That's, That's my belief. Right. Yeah, we've definitely talked about that, especially at the higher level. Yeah. And it seems like people we've interviewed in the past, um, most people have played, you know, many sports and then somewhere around their junior or senior year, they either drop one of the three sports if they were a three sport athlete or they drop everything but baseball. I mean, what would you recommend to people as as a coach? Is it just different based on the person or, or when do you think that time would be? I think you have to look at the the individual's athleticism. I mean, so you have you have freak athletes. Um, the kid who can grab a basketball and dunk it whenever he wants, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the kid who's six foot four, six foot five, and he can throw ninety miles an hour without training. You pass him, you know, a football, and he's in the end zone. I mean, those type of athletes, I think they can get away with playing in three sports. But then you take a an athlete who doesn't have those, you know, special athletic uh, abilities, and they need to really work on certain skills. Like they might need to work on their arm strength or they might need to work on getting bigger for bat speed or they have to, you know, work with a a speed training coach to get faster. So if you're playing those multiple sports, I don't think you get those opportunities to develop your skills. So that's what I see when kids get older, if that makes sense. Yep, that does make sense. Right. Yeah. Good point. So Diana gave us a brief overview in the introduction, but can you tell us a bit about the different teams that you have coached over the years? Well, so like when I got out of college, I was teaching in the Bay City Public Schools and I ended up being the JV baseball coach at Bay City Western. And I did that for three years. And my goal was to be a varsity baseball coach. And the issue was, is the head baseball coach at Western was a year older than me. And the head baseball coach at Bay City Central was a year older than me. <laughs> so oh, I'm like, and they, and they were young and they were good players and so it became apparent to me, like, I'm not going to be a head coach in Bay City. <laughs> so um, Freeland was looking for a coach. And so I went and interviewed with them and their athletic director, his name is George Eiler. He used to be the head football coach at SVSU um, when they had some national success at the NEIA level. And we just hit it off. And I just said, you know, this is going to work. And so I coached at Freeland for three years. And then uh, the Nouvelle job opened up and I interviewed for that and they hired me. And that that was probably um, one of the biggest, you know, what I'm going to call um, moments in my life as far as philosophical approach to coaching. Because at Nouvelle, the parents there and, and the players, they had developed a culture. I'm going to call it a championship culture that ex- probably had existed 15 years before I arrived there. And it, it changed how I coached. And I was just so fortunate enough the year they hired me, we won the state championship in 1999. 
Wow. Um, and it was amazing, too, because the kid hit a walk-off home run in the bottom of the seventh to win the state championship. So. Wow. I'm just going to interrupt you for one second here because I've got a couple things with the Nouvel connection. Was that your first year coaching was in 1999 at Nouvel? The first year coaching there, yes. Okay, because I'm trying to do the math because we also did an interview with uh, Gina Bauer. Yep. She was there before me. Yeah, she would have graduated, okay. I believe, the year before that. And she didn't play her senior year anyway. Right. She played softball. I think she did. She, she actually graduated in 99. Oh, did she? Yeah. Oh, she just didn't play that year then. Yeah, they were they were trying to get her to come out, some of the players, because they said, oh, she's a pretty good left-handed pitcher. You know, she'd be a great pitcher on weekends. And I think she had figured out, it sounds like, you know, there aren't many opportunities for girls in, obviously, you know, baseball mm-hmm. as far as mm-hmm. at the collegiate level. So I think she switched gears and started playing softball. So, yeah, she um, basically, I think in the interview, she said she sat a lot her junior year and she wanted to play. So she said, well, we'll try out softball. <laughs> so I was curious because we, you know, we have talked about Nouvelle and just also to give people who aren't familiar with the area an idea. We had a family from our town, from Cairo, who moved to Saginaw so that their kids could attend Nouvelle because it's about 45 minutes away from us because they wanted them to get some looks and to play some competitive baseball. And yeah, they were definitely known for their baseball. Wow, crazy. Yep. So then after Nouvelle, I went to Bay City Central. Okay. And coached varsity for three years. That was a job I, I, I was really passionate about because the players that I coached, they walked in the same footsteps that I did growing up. Like they played in the same little leagues, mm-hmm. the pony league. Right. So we, we had we had that personal connection. Mm-hmm. And we had did something that you just don't do at Bay City Central. We won a Saginaw Valley League championship and we were rated <laughs> in the top 10 in the state for two years. So it was nice. it was a great it was, yeah, it was a great experience. Um, and then from there, I got out of coaching for, I don't know, maybe about, about a year. Actually, and then I started coaching with Wendell Niemer on means. Oh. And so from 2003 up to when we, you know, started the River Dogs organization, I was coaching, you know, Saginaw means. And then, believe it was... In 2006, we had these crazy parents who wanted to play in a fall tournament. We ended up going out to Vegas, and that's kind of how the River Dogs started. And then I coached in the River Dogs organization. I've coached 18U, 14U, 9U. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) almost every, you know, when I first started coaching, it wasn't my child. So I was doing the older ages. Mm -hmm. And then, obviously, when Brody came up, I started coaching him at 8 on our 9U team. So similar to what? you know, Trevor's doing with your youngest son. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he, we finally put him down at, at his own age level now. Um, he's 11, playing 11U this year. So just curious, did you ever coach Lenny Guzdala? Because we've talked to him as well. I didn't coach Lenny. He was like a year behind the group I had. Oh, okay. Yep, but I know Lenny well. Actually, I played one summer with his father um, for post-18 American Legion. I believe that was my sophomore, junior in high school, so... Well, this is perfect. I feel like he's just connected to like everyone we've talked to. Stephanie. I know, right? <laughs> yeah. Mark definitely is connected to Bay City. We see all of this. <laughs> yeah. Because you've coached at so many different levels. Mark, do you have like a specific team or an age level, I guess I could say, that is one of your favorites or has been one of the most rewarding? I mean, the biggest rewards, honestly, are with the youngest kids and you see their skill development improve and they have success. I mean, that's a joy, I think, for any coach. However, like when you start talking about what am I passionate about, the competition. So our greatest players have been like, for me, Saginaw Means and then the Michigan Select. Um, When we were able to in essence, cherry pick the best players in the area and who were passionate, right, to play at the next level. Those are kids I love to work with because they will grind. They will give you time, right? They want to do everything mm-hmm. in their in their power to be the best player they can. So that that's, a to me, that's my favorite age to coach. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, you, you just briefly mentioned it. Do you want to go a little bit more into the story about, like, the River Dogs and, sure. like, the time period? Because if I understand yeah. your story correctly, there weren't a whole, like, that didn't really exist in mid-Michigan at that time, the travel ball thing? So what's really interesting is, like, so my business partner at the time, Tom Merkel, his son was playing at Oakland University. Okay. And he was playing with players from the Metro Detroit area. And speaking with them and their parents, 
you know, just at some Oakland University outings, fundraising outings, it became apparent, like, we're way behind the eight ball compared to what they were doing there. They were talking about playing like 75 to 90 games in the summer, you know, especially if they were a travel team Mm -hmm. where they would start, you know, March or April and and then actually play all the way through August. And we're like, whoa, we have Little League and Pony League. It became apparent we were behind the eight ball. So we just, we had talked about it. Like maybe we have to try to like change the model because our kids aren't getting the same looks as the Metro Detroit kids. Right. So after we had opened Pete, we had a, we had a couple of fathers, like they had chatted with us about, you know, maybe we can go to a big tournament in the fall down in Florida. Well, what was interesting, it was the year after Hurricane Katrina. And I told the one that I'm not going down to Florida, uh, you know, <laughs> or any of those Gulf states in the fall. Cause you, right. know, you saw what happened with K- Katrina. Right. And then he's like, well, let me go check some other tournaments out. And then he came back the next week at his son's lesson. And he said, hey, there's this great tournament in Las Vegas. I'm like, okay, I'm interested. Let's see what we can do. <laughs> I love Vegas. So, <laughs> right? so it was just really odd when we first opened Peak. We had a large number of kids that were like 13 years old. Okay. Um, and they were training with us. So we, we had a meeting with like eight or nine of those kids and their families and said, Hey, we have a gentleman here. You propose like we go to this tournament. It's in Vegas. Would you be interested? And they were really interested. Like, yes, let's do this. So we wow. picked up a few more players. We fundraised and we played in a tournament called the Las Vegas Desert Classic. And we called ourselves the Saginaw Bay River Docks. Um, and I'll be honest, we weren't we weren't the most talented team. So when we went out to to Vegas, we got beat. We got beat up pretty good by California teams and you know Nevada teams and Arizona teams. However, when we were out there, two parents, uh, one was Al Provo, who was the first president of the River Dogs, and the other was uh, Mark Gurney. They approached us at uh, the resort we were staying at, and they're like, how do we keep this going? We're like, huh? They're like, this is the best competitive baseball our kids have ever played. How do we keep it going? Nice. When we got back to Bay City, we invited the, like, I think three or four high school coaches from the area to our facility and we talked to them about what do you think about starting travel baseball you know because if, if you guys support it we, we think we can get it up and running and of course they were 100 percent behind it because you know if you're developing players for them when they come into their program that only helps out their successes so yeah, yeah of course so we started a 12 a 14 a 16 year old team the next year and then from there I would say it just blew up every year. We added more age groups and eventually we added girls softball. And honestly, we didn't know exactly what we were doing based on the tournaments we played in and the level of competition. But then it became apparent about our fifth or sixth year in. It's like, we have some good teams. And all of a sudden we started to play in tournaments that were on the national stage. And what's crazy is a group of kids that I coach that are now, most of them are juniors and seniors, a couple sophomores. Mm-hmm. I'll tell people this, you know, Jeb's team, really good. Um, but this is, that was the best team that we've ever had in, in River Dogs history. That team was rated number one. They finished well in some national tournaments. They won like six super NITs. It was just, wow. and you're going to see draft picks. There's three Michigan commits on that team. I mean, it's just crazy. So in this team based in little old Bay City, Michigan, that's crazy. Mm-hmm. And, and and when we got good, we started attracting people from places we didn't expect. You know, we've had kids from the Detroit area, Kalamazoo area that continued playing on that team. So when you start looking at like, you know, people say success breeds success. It really does. Like, you know, here's two kids from Country Day coming to try out for our team, Matawan, Portage Central. So the makeup of that team changed also as they got older, but some really special talents on that team. Yeah. And absolutely. And just it's funny that that little trip out to Las Vegas, you know, because of an idea dad had is now, you know, now the River Dogs, I don't even know how many teams they have on any given year, but say maybe like 18 teams or so between the baseball and the softball. Um, they're still going strong. Thanks to <laughs> thanks yeah, to what right? you guys started. So yeah, we appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, you've definitely elevated baseball for the Bay City Saginaw area. So thank you. In the entire thumb, I want to say there's Actually, not there's not <laughs> much for us out here. And so uh, a lot of the more, I guess, competitive minded families tend to tend to flock that way. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And that, and honestly, that's what I think myself and 
Tom, we appreciate because when those parents would bring their players, you know, to be rubber dogs and then also to train with us, you know, I think they had some foresight and a vision of what they were hoping to accomplish for their their young boys or girls. So that that was the great thing about, I think, about the River Dog program. You weren't just getting a kid who wanted to play baseball or softball. You were getting a kid, you know, in a family who said, let's see how far we can take this game. Can we play at the next level? So, yeah. Absolutely. So now that the organization is very well established, we know that you've moved out of your board role, but you're still involved through giving lessons and working with the River Dogs teams. But I also imagine that you're pretty focused um, with your oldest son, who is now a high school player. How involved are you? And if at all, are you coaching Brody's teams? So last year, I actually took, you know, the goal was to take the summer off and just let him play. Um, you know, cause I want him to spread his wings. Mm-hmm. Dad's been in his corner his whole life and he played for a team called little Caesars, which was a combination of little Caesars players and former river dog players, a really good team. And halfway through the season, the head coach and the assistant coach, uh, they got into it. Um, kind of a funny story. The assistant coach who drew drove, he and the head coach down to Georgia in the middle of our, our tournament down there after they got into it, he left them at the hotel. <laughs> Ooh, oh, yikes. They really got into it. Yeah. 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 So one of the parents actually had to drive him home. So he came up to me and said, Hey, I need someone to help me coach. Would you help? And it's like, well, what do you tell him? No. <laughs> yeah. Right. Kind of, no. Like I wanted one summer off, darn it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> So, yes, I, I mean, I was really casual and enjoying my summer till then. So I coached <laughs> the last half of last summer. And then this year, the Michigan Blue Jays that Brody's on, the head coach asked me to work with the pitchers. So I'm going to do that. But I'll be honest, I'm trying to step away from him just because I want him, like I said, to spread his wings, not always look over to dad in the corner. He needs to, to grow on his own. So that's that's kind of where I'm at. I, I, I know I'm going to coach somewhere down the road again. I just don't know at what level. And, and I'm actually helping out Bill Ruff's team right now, too, as far as uh, their practices. And that's a Michigan Select team, right? Yep, Michigan Select. So okay. oh, that's great. I've helped, I helped them on Tuesday, Thursday, Sundays, okay. all the way up up to last week before they went down to Georgia. So, But Brody's high school team you're not involved in? Are you, do nope. you just get to be nope. a parent there? Just just going to be a parent. And how, are you looking forward to that? Or how, do you have mixed feelings? I mean, I don't know. I feel like you've been a coach that long. It's got to be hard to just sit there. Um, I, my, my only mixed feelings, it, you know, people used to embrace my practices, you know, at the high school and the travel ball level. And, you know, and I tell people this, I'm the wrong parent. <laughs> you aren't critiquing you as a coach because I'm overcritical <laughs> with coach. <laughs> I'm sure. Like, yeah. Because yeah. And it's just because of my background. Right. So right. when I see things not happening, it just is like they can add so much more as far as, you know, increasing, you know, the the intensity, right, the skills, the teaching and their practices. So sometimes I get a little frustrated. So what I've learned to do is like, OK, I'm staying away from Brody's practices. I'll go pick him up at the end. <laughs> Yeah, I, and I told my friends this: I, you don't want me to be the guy giving you feedback on your coaching because I'm overcritical. Unless you have thick skin, if you have thick skin and you want to hear the truth, I will give it to you. If you don't have thick skin and you got, you know, you got an ego, um, I'm the wrong guy to give you feedback. So yeah, and I will say um, one of the things that I appreciate most about you is your practices. Um, and we're going to do an entire episode on this very soon, maybe even next episode, I don't know, about the entire Alabama Orange Beach River Dog thing. But mm-hmm. uh, so I feel like that's where I've gotten to see how you run things more than anything is from sitting in the bleachers there and watching how you run practices in Alabama. And I feel like the way that you're able to to plan practice time and how efficient it is and how I don't know how to explain it, but you like you'll, you'll bring the kids in and you'll talk for like two minutes and you'll have someone demonstrate what you're talking about and then you send them out to go do it. 
and there's very, very, very little standing around and the kids are always moving. They're always doing something. They're constantly moving on to new things. And because of that, I feel like I've been spoiled as a parent where now I'm really critical of coaches when I watch my kids like, oh my gosh, they're wasting so much time and they're just talking yes. to them and they need to be doing things. And yet you definitely know how to run a practice. I will, I will second that. And you know, I, I go back to my coaches. If you play in an organization or you play at a, a college where you have that type of coach, you learn from their teachings and their philosophies. And I, I was fortunate like at Lake Michigan College and then at Central Michigan University. I mean, our practice plan, their organization, their their ability to teach, it's really similar to what you see when I run my practices. And what I think happens to a lot of coaches, they're not exposed to that experience. So if they have been exposed to it, they really don't have that framework on how to run a proper practice. Yeah, that makes sense. Agree. Yeah. And this is this is what bothers me. Time is such a precious commodity. I think we've learned that with COVID. And when oh, I see coaches, uh, you know, not realizing they're abusing their time, I mean, that bothers me. Kids standing around is like, why are you wasting their time? Let's mm-hmm. go, guys. <laughs> so, yeah. 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 No, absolutely. I, I had a mentor, actually a basketball coach that I taught with. His name was Ozzy Cavazos at Bay City Central. This guy ran like crazy, unbelievable basketball practices. But he used to say, John Wooden, you know, the great John Wooden basketball coach, he used to always say this. He said, repetition is the mother of success. And that just stuck with me. Like, if we're not using repetition as our framework, we're not going to develop our players. So that's probably what you see in my practices, Diana. So, yeah. Yes, that is a good point. So we mentioned, Mark, that you were an associate scout for the Texas Rangers. Could you tell us what that entailed or what you did? Yep. So really what it had to do with is is, uh, when I coached with Wendell Niemer, he was an associate scout with the Cleveland Indians at the time. So we had some, like I said before, we had some really good players and a guy named Roger Coryell, who used to be the head coach at Eastern Michigan University, he would come watch our guys play in the summer. And then... Oh, it was in the spring one year. He called me up and said, hey, you interested in being a scout? <laughs> I'm like, well, what's it in? Oh, I said, what's it entail? And he just said, you know, I know you run that facility. I know you coach means just when you see players, you tell me so I can check them out. So that's how I got involved with that. And what was really great about Roger, when we would point out players to him like that were in our facility, he would actually come up and, and instruct them and, and work with them. So, so oh, that's wow, kind of, that's even better. So that's kind of how that worked. I wonder if that was Chad's coach. Did you say he was coach at Eastern Michigan? I guarantee it was his coach. So There's the connection of why he wanted Chad to go play for Means the summer after he played for him. So, okay, there you go. so yeah that's kind of how I started scouting and what's interesting you know scouts kind of hang out with each other so when I would be with Wendell you'd sometimes see a Kansas City Royals scout would show up his boss from the Indians would show up obviously my boss with the Rangers would show up we got to know the Cincinnati Red Scouts uh, a Tiger Scout and these guys you know they start pointing out um, I guess the attributes of what they're looking for as far as players so that's kind of you know when I started you know you were asking about uh, my reflections there that I made my New Year's reflections turn ons Mm -hmm. and turn offs a lot of it has to do with those what those gentlemen actually taught me over the course of time in the scouting world. So Okay, yeah, that's great. Let's go into that. So, well, you mentioned earlier that you've gained an inch, I guess, since you've had your knee surgery. You had uh, a knee replacement a year or two ago, right? Let, yep, December 26, 2019. Okay, <laughs> so uh, last New Year's, I suppose, you were recovering from that and had time to put together all these Coach Kriege how would you say that Coach Kriege is <laughs> New Year's reflections? <laughs> yep. <laughs> and I just absolutely loved them. I felt like you had some really great information in there. And I looked forward to when you posted and shared all these little baseball tidbits and stories with us. But um, you did, yeah, you had quite a few where you talked about these turn-ons and turn-offs when evaluating players that I guess come from this time when you were scouting and hanging out with other scouts. So, um, you you know, you mentioned a few different categories and one of them was like mental turn-ons and turn-offs if you could talk about that for a minute yep so players and parents might not realize this but when scouts show up to the field sometimes they're there to look at a specific player so the moment you arrive you find that kid and you're going to study that kid 
probably, you know, um, like no other kid, you're putting them under a microscope. So you're going to watch their body language. You're going to watch how they interact with their, their teammates. You're going to see how they act with umpires and coaches. You're going to look at their energy levels as far as hustle, their aptitude as far as their baseball IQ. So you're, you're watching everything about this individual. And, you know, when I start looking at turn-ons, I love kids who play with energy, guys who hustle, who are passionate. Um, so that's like, that's a huge mental turn-on for me. Kids who carry themselves like they're Clint Eastwood walking in, in the old Western saloons, right? <laughs> like, I own this baseball field. I'm the guy in charge. I love those guys because you know they're going to compete. So, you know, from a mental perspective, those are the things I'm looking at. Do they have energy in their body? right? Do they have great body language? Are they a leader? Okay. Do they love to compete? So from a mental perspective, you know, those are things that I look, look for like immediately. Right. And then turnoffs, <laughs> you know, I don't like, I don't like focusing so much on the negative, but there's some, there's some definite turnoffs. And we, what we kind of say is like, when there's too many turnoffs, you just kind of cross the kid off the list, regardless of their talent level. So if you see a lot, oh, yeah. poor body language, lack of hustle, powder, excuse maker, right? Kid who can't make good eye contact with people, um, oh. you know, individual who has a, a ton of excuses, a kid whose parents are behind, you know, the backstop, always making excuses for the kid. So Ugh, yeah, you, mm-hmm. you start checking these off and you start checking two or three of those boxes. And it's like, you know what? We're not going to waste our time on that guy because it's too big of a project, regardless of his talent level. Now, you mentioned parents there. You know, you hear that that's something scouts are looking for. Is, is that true, that you're looking to see if the parents are going to be a problem or, or how they interact with the kid? I think you have to because, you know, the majority of players in the United States, they go on to college first, right? Right. The, the, the special, special talent can go to pro ball at a high school. So you have to realize that player is going to spend anywhere from three to five years of his life in that particular college program. So when you start looking at like, if this kid's, a, you know, if you got parent problems, do you want to recommend this kid to a, a program that you have a great relationship with? Because you're going to end that relationship. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it makes sense. So I think, you know, the parent thing, it's, it's critical. Yeah, makes sense. Absolutely. So how about those physical turn-ons and turn-offs beyond the obvious, you know, five yeah. tools that they have, but what about those? So when you, you know, this is kind of funny. I, I tell people this, when you're looking at players, you almost look at them like cattle, right? Um, <laughs> okay. And, it, and it's, and so Wendell Niemer, he, uh, he worked with a guy named Tony Lucadella and you can, and you guys can put this on your podcast. There's a book out, it's called Prophet of the Sandlot. Okay. Tony Lucadella is probably considered to be the greatest scouter in the game of baseball. And he scouted the Midwest and Wendell worked underneath him for eight years. Huh. So if Tony liked a guy, you know, as far as like, wow, I like this player, he would pull him off the field. And while he was shaking his hand, he was grabbing his wrist and looking at his ankles and his feet <laughs> and putting his, his hand in the shoulder socket. <laughs> wow. Because oh there there's some indicators that allow scouts like, hey, there's a red flag on a player. What, so some of the things they don't like, they don't like big ankles. They don't like big oversized feet. Um, they don't like loose shoulder sockets. They don't like skinny little wrists. Um, <laughs> they don't like rounded shoulders. So uh, you start going, you know, through this checklist and it's like, hey, this kid plays pretty well, but we got too many red, red flags here. So we got to be really, really cautious with this kid. And then sometimes you'll like a kid. You'll shake their hand. They have the strong hands, the big, thick wrists, the square shoulders, the small ankles, the smaller feet. Um, Another one is I look at the distance between their shoulder and their elbow. They don't like them long, like Uh, them shorter, especially for hitters. So you start looking at, I guess, these body attributes, and it's going to give you an indicator of what might this player be like in five to 10 years down the road. So True. Like, is this just something that you, you know, learned from... Wendell, who learned from Tony. Yeah, so Wendell learned this from Tony. Uh-huh. And here's what's funny. You know, you talk about the five tools. Wendell would always say Tony doesn't look at five tools. He says there's eight sides to a baseball player. And here's what's crazy. Wendell sat me down about two years before he passed. I don't know if he knew he was going to pass. And he said, you know, you keep asking me about these eight sides. And I told you, I can't tell you. I'm going to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> But huh. he said, here's the deal. You tell no one until you think it's time to tell them. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> and then he shared it with you at that time then? Yeah, you know, so we have these eight sides. So when you watch a guy play, you got to see how these sides work. And Wendell said this, like, if you find a player where five sides work, you got to follow that player. You got to follow him. So hmm. different, and it's a different approach to scouting. You know, everything Absolutely. today, today's scouting world, it's, I mean, to me, there's parts of it I don't like. I think it's, it's turned into more like an NFL combine based on data and numbers. Oh yeah. And they forget to find out guys who can play. And what I think they're going to find out is these data and numbers, they're going to miss out on a large percentage of the good players because they were focusing on the wrong details. Right. I mean, there's so much of that world I don't understand, but I do know that it's gone away from a lot of the the old school type scouts and more into just sifting through data and finding players that way. So. Hmm. I, I don't want to say it's not a bad route to go because some of the measurables are obviously what you're going to look for, but the game is more than measurables. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you got to find guys who can play. Yeah, absolutely. So one of your reflections you talked about was beyond the eye test and analytics. Um, you shared the story of a particular player and observations about their attributes that wouldn't be measurable by any analytical analysis. Would you right. be willing to talk about that? So there's a player, he was from Reese, Michigan. His name's Mark Haskey. I think that's who you're referring to, right? Yes. Yes. So Mark played for me in the summer when I was at Nouvelle after his sophomore year. And the first thing I noticed about Mark when I watched him play was he wasn't like this physical kid who stuck out, but how he carried himself on the field and how he played, it caught my eye like right away, like, wow, this kid competes. And, mm-hmm. you know, that that's what drew me to him. And I just, you know, as I'm watching Reese play before we're going to play in a tournament game at Nouvelle, I just said, man, I really like that kid right there who's up to bat. He knows how to play the game. And mm-hmm. this guy standing next to me, all of a sudden I see this ear-to-ear grin, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and, uh, and I looked over him, I said, is that your son? He said, yeah, that's my son. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so... And then we formed a really good relationship. And then he played for us that summer. But some things I noticed about him, he was the first guy at the field. He was the last guy to leave. He always wanted extra hitting. He always wanted extra ground balls, right? So here's this kid who had this tremendous work ethic. He wanted to play, I believe, at the Division One level in Michigan. But he was what I call like a bubble kid, a tweener. Because of his physical attributes, people really didn't like say that's our guy right Mm -hmm. we'll look at him but Mm -hmm. he's not our guy so he and his dad they decided to take a a trip down to florida i think it was like over thanksgiving break and they went worked out for five or six junior college coaches and he had broke it down to like three schools he wanted to go to and he ended up going to daytona state and the the coach at daytona state is a former pro player and division one coach and great just an outstanding teacher of the game and it's like I said in there, it was like a marriage made in heaven. <laughs> so these, these two guys just connected. What was interesting is after two years at Daytona, now here's a kid who has the attributes, strong arm, fast, hits with, you know, power, tremendous fielder. And from there, he went to the University of Alabama, then the University of Cincinnati. Then he was drafted by the Detroit Tigers. And I think he played four to five years in their organization. And I believe he made it up to double A. And he actually got to hit behind uh, Pudge Rodriguez in spring training. So oh. or in front in front of Pudge wow. Rodriguez in <laughs> spring training in an MLB game. So that was pretty cool. Yeah. And so that's something you would tie more towards like his work ethic is what it sounds yeah, like. like. Here, here's a, here's a kid whose passion, right. And dream was to play at the highest level. And I'll be honest, Wendell included, there were people, they just, they didn't think he was that good. And he mm-hmm. blocked out what those people had to say. He focused on his goals and dreams. And when you look at, you know, the end of his story, it's pretty special. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So that's nice. I always say you don't sell someone short, man, because you don't know what goes on inside of their chest cavity in their head. So, right. That is true. So going on that, we've definitely always talked about the mental game and mental toughness and things like that. And one thing that, well, one of many things that I've (laughs) been able to witness through the camps and games and practices that you do is your ability to connect and motivate a team and the kids. So what are your strategies for motivating kids to play at their highest level? You know, I think one thing we, we stress is we play at 100% all the time. I hear, you ever hear the old saying, give me 110%? Yeah, yeah. And that drives me nuts because <laughs> what, what does that really mean? That you gave 90%, 80%, and now you can give an extra 10%? 
So, right. so my, my mission is like, guys, we always give 100%. So physically, mentally, that's your approach on the field. The second thing is you've probably heard us say this before. We believe in the concept of winning every pitch, yes. regardless if you're on the field, at bat, on deck, in the dugout. So we, we got into a, as I'm going to call it, a mode where when the kids would come off the field at the end of an inning, we'd bring them together and we would ask them, okay, did you win every pitch? And initially, maybe two or three hands would go up. And then as the season progressed, you would ask them, did you win every pitch? And you would see like almost every single kid's hand go up. Then we'd ask them at the end of the game, did you win every pitch? And when you see almost every single kid's hand go up, that's outstanding because you know, okay, like your kids were in the game, you competed. There's probably a pretty good chance that you came out on top as far as being victorious. So that that is, right. I think that is one of the most important elements we've had, that concept. So, you know, our kids aren't allowed to take a pitch off. So that, that's, right. that's what I'm huge on as far as a coach. Yeah. And I think one of the things that's interesting about watching you coach the kids is I, I don't know what it is, if it's an intangible or, or what, but I feel like you're able to get that 100% effort out of kids almost effortlessly, it seems like they just, they want to work. They want to perform for you. They want to impress you. They don't want to let you down. Um, and and ho- I'm hoping part of it is, you know, for themselves, <laughs> for themselves as well. Right. But it does seem like you just spark something in the kids where they just perform uh-huh. better when you're there than when you're not. And, you know, and I think this is what happens with kids. If they feel like you've been, you're investing in them, they're going to invest back in you. Absolutely. So, you know, guys who go through the motions and don't give their all to the kids, I think they're going to get that back in return. But if you can show the kids, you know, hey, we care, number one, we're passionate about what we do with you, we're trying to help you, they give you the same back in return. Yeah. And for people that haven't seen Mark Coach, like, he is super passionate and I'm just going to be like completely blunt and transparent here where the first time I took my kids to Alabama and they were going to go to the camps I I had seen you we'd watch some games with your 12 and 13 year olds and I was like oh my gosh like he's intense like you know he can be kind (laughs) of loud I don't know about how this is going to go with my seven-year-old and my nine-year-old and (laughs) and oh my gosh the and the practices were so intense and the conditioning was brutal and I sat there in the bleachers and I like had tears running down my eyes I think I went to one practice and it was one where they were running around the field with the bats over their heads and you're like oh man like that's kind of brutal and then they got to home Uh, play I'm gonna put that one on horny so (laughs) and they would do all these like push-ups and then they and then they would go again and then they would do something else and you're like oh that was so hard I can't believe they did that and then they'd get up and they'd go and anyway but my kids love I don't want to say they loved the conditioning because obviously I'm sure they didn't but I asked them after the practice you know like how did that go you know you just went through some pretty intense coaching and conditioning and all that and they were like oh you know that was good like where are we gonna go eat lunch like it was no <laughs> it was like mm-hmm. I thought it was like gonna be this hugely traumatic thing and they were like no it was totally fine and it, it's been good for them I feel like I don't know I just I appreciate the way that you coach and and I think you're really good with little kids I was worried about the little kid aspect and how would that translate but I I uh, I thought that you were you were great with the little kids and like you said I don't know if it's just because they can see that you're invested in you care but they they're able to deal with it and be coached harder and and thrive I guess I don't know and so I look at it like this too like so if a parent's going to bring their child to Alabama they probably realize like hey we're invested the kids invested you know the they're they're down there to get better so I think the medicine that we you know we give them they'll take as many doses that you give them because they're down there to get better that's my belief so if, you know, if you just took a, a typical, let's say, rec ball player who wants to be on his like community team, I don't think they'd buy in so well with what we do in Alabama. <laughs> right? No, I don't think so. Right? But you push them, and then they will—they will rise up. They're going to do it. Yeah. I always felt like the t-shirts we do for Alabama should be more like I survived Alabama (laughs) more than anything. But I know I appreciate it because my kids, you know, they go to another practice for another sport or whatever. And the coach is like, you have no idea what you're in for. And my kids are kind of like, yeah, that's fine. Like, just throw (laughs) me what you got. (laughs) I can handle it. We've heard that. We've heard that from many players. That's kind of funny. So, Uh uh-huh. That's nice. 
<laughs> Here's the thing that I find out too with players though. If you work them hard and you challenge them and they've put in that time and effort, they've invested a ton, right? There's more at stake for them when they compete versus a kid who hasn't put the time and the effort in. And I don't know if you notice that. Um, so it's kind of like, you know, when you look at our military, we train our soldiers, you know, like our Marines in San Diego, California, and they put them through this intense training. But then you're in the foxhole with the guy that you were training with there in boot camp. There's more at stake, I think, when right. when they collectively are, are, are pushing each other. So that's, that's one of the reasons I, I work them hard, not just simply to develop their skill and their talent, but it's that mental thing like, you know, I've worked so hard, I have more at stake, I'm going to compete 100% all the time. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that makes mm-hmm. sense. Yep. And we appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. We, I think we just have one last question for you in... I feel like when we think of you, that one of the words that comes to mind is swag because you talk about that all the time. Um, <laughs> and it seems like it's something, you know, you're just preaching to your players. And you, you talked a little bit about like the whole Clint Eastwood thing, and I'm guessing that's what you mean. But I wondered if you could just talk a little bit about that and why you think the swag is so important. I mean, I think it's about confidence, right? When you're confident in anything that you do, you're going to perform better. And you can see the opposite when people okay, have doubt or they don't believe in themselves, I think they become vulnerable. So one thing we really you know, promoted is, you know, you hear the term swagger. Well, that's where it evolved into swag. Like, what, what does that look like, guys? Like a guy, you know, with great body language, a guy who's a little bit arrogant, a guy who hustles with energy, right? A guy who looks like he owns the field when he steps on it. And that, that's, that was one of the things we would tell our players when we would go play in tournaments. Guys, we're going to go into Eastern Michigan University this weekend. And this is going to be our house for the weekend. And we're going to own this house. Right? And then we're going to take care of business. Right? We're going to we're going to have to, you know, teach these other teams a lesson. And when the weekend's over, <laughs> when the weekend's over, we'll give them their house back. But for that particular weekend, we own this place. And that's the feeling like we that. want you. We want you to have that feeling when you're on the field. So our kids, I mean, if you've watched them play, they are totally confident, right? You know, and mm-hmm. they hot, there's a, they might hot dog a little bit showing off their skills. So there's that swag you have, right? Where you see our team warm up, walk on the field. I believe we're intimidating to our competition from having, you know, by promoting swag. So, yeah, right. So we definitely know there's that mental component. So yeah, absolutely. So have you, have you ladies heard of a organization called five star? Yes. So they mm-hmm. have jerseys that say mafia on them. <laughs> and I'm like, is that the biggest swag move I've ever seen in my life? <laughs> I haven't seen that. That's great. Okay. <laughs> and then I was going to like share this with Trevor. I was because I was going to tell him about this. I saw the mafia jerseys last summer in Cartersville, Georgia. I'm like, you know, the jerseys that used to just say dogs. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't it be neat if the River Dogs had a jersey that said swag? <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's, it's right in like the, I want to say like the mission statement or whatever that you guys came up with, I believe, isn't it? (laughs) That word. But yeah, I think that's all that we've got for you. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you. It was so nice to finally talk to you. And I appreciate that you were willing to do this today. Hey, thank you. I'll I'll be honest. I enjoy it. Baseball is my passion. So, you know, when people want to talk baseball with me, I'll chew their ear off. So yeah, absolutely. (laughs) And you've got so much good stuff to share. So absolutely. We might hit you up again. You just never know. (laughs) All right. That'd be cool. All right. Have a nice day, Mark. Thanks. Yeah, you too. Thank you. Bye. Bye bye. And that's the end of the game. So feel free to find us on social media or you can check out our website, Moms in Baseball, or give us a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. Until then, have fun at the fields. We'll see you next week. Same. I wonder if you could do some sort of play with dog and swag because you've got a lot of the same letters there. I'd have to think about right. that. <laughs> I'd have to think about that. Yeah, it's too That's early. Good. That's good. It's still too early. I think yeah. it's the same letters. D A W G. Yeah. I, see, I, yeah, just about. Yeah, right. Or dogs, right? Dogs with. There's just not the D. I'm, okay, there you go. Yeah, I I'm terrible at visualizing it. I have to like type it out and look at it. But yes, yeah, I bet you could do something with that. Hmm. So there you go. There's a seed to plant in Trevor's head. So. There you go. <laughs> yeah, right. There you go. That's a good Our idea. Our next shirts. Yeah. <laughs>